0: We left the the narrative of 1 Samuel last week with the ark captured and the glory having departed from Israel. It was a departure symbolized by the name Ichabod, given by Eli's dying daughter in law to her newborn son. And after its exile, the ark ends up in a town called Kiriath Jerim. Some 20 years go by, and it appears that Israel is still suffering from attacks from the Philistines. And then finally, after a couple of decades, it appears, perhaps in response to Samuel's national prophetic ministry, Israel starts to repent, to lament after, or turn back to the Lord, as verse 2 puts it. And so that brings us to where we are today. We'll make... Three points there on the back inside page of your bulletin repentance, renewal, remembrance. Repentance, renewal, remembrance. So, first, repentance. Israel seems to be turning back to the Lord, and, and Samuel's ministry, his preaching, his ministry of the word is designed to strengthen that turning, to ensure that the turning is robust. And genuine. Thus he says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, sin is always a kind of exile. Repentance is always a kind of return home, a return to the Lord Himself. And to be an authentic turning, it has to be whole or undivided or entire with all of our hearts. This goes back to the very Shema. Of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And so, this turning, Samuel says, is going to require concrete, overt, outward action. This love manifests publicly its allegiance. If you are returning, if you are returning, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods. Commit yourself, Samuel continues, to the Lord and serve him only. He will deliver you out of the hands of the Philistines. What Samuel is doing here is essentially preaching on the first commandment I am the Lord your God you shall have no other gods before me. So rest, rest from the enemies follows repentance. And a a thoroughgoing repentance always means an embrace, a fresh embrace of the first commandment. So verse 4 in the text tells us, Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroths and served the Lord only. Now, we should not underestimate how difficult the tearing here, the putting away in view would be. The Baals and the Ashtaroths were Canaanite fertility gods and goddesses. And worshiping them was how people secured harvests and rain and fruitfulness for the land. Right? This is how worshiping them was how you kept your 401k viable. Right? How you secured your pension. In addition, these gods, their ceremonies were sexual in nature. They involved ritual prostitution. As one scholar put it, it was religion where one's chapel and one's brothel were the same place. Now, you might imagine the cultural force of that, the popularity of it, the sensual inclusivity of it. This is a religion of the sexual revolution. These are the hip gods. These gods and goddesses are not narrow and intolerant like Israel's god, they embrace other gods. Other consorts, wives, lovers, all sorts of God combos. They have their own Netflix mini-series. These are not small-minded, jealous gods. You can have your sexual preferences. you can have your every desire fulfilled, and still be accepted by the gods and have their blessing on your life. How is Israel going to compete with that? What is not to like? you can see how this would become, and in fact did become in the ancient Near East, the culturally dominant social reality. These are gods that never demand repentance. They never call for a deep radical restructuring or a turning. So, on the other hand, Israel's God, because he is, and because he alone is, And because this lying worship is degrading and dehumanizing and because it's an affront to his glorious being, he demands exclusive allegiance. Right. This is what we mean when we say he is a jealous God. Jealous here is a virtue, the way a fiercely loyal person is jealous for their spouse's exclusive loyalty. Jealousy here is sanity. It's like a parent ferociously concerned about their child's well-being. Baal, on the other hand, Baal and the regional gods, they have no first commandment. There is no first commandment. The new age gods have no first commandment. You can mix them, match them. Yahweh, then... The God of Israel is the one, the unique, the only God. Now, it's often said that the modern church and thus the modern world has no real consciousness of sin and its gravity. Right? There's, a, there's a famous saying from uh, Richard Niebuhr, famous earliest 20th century ethicist, theologian, who said that you could sum up all 20th century theology by saying, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. So the root of this problem is a loss of the vision of the God of Israel himself. I am not convinced That we can persuade a civilization which is trying to shelve the the very idea of moral guilt, although of course there's new moral guilt coming in. There's a strange persistence of guilt under new forms, but I am not convinced we can fix this or get at it without a recovery of the biblical vision of God in His unique, incomparable beauty, in His unrivaled excellence, in His fiery holiness, in His glory which precisely because his glory is infinite and full and replete cannot and will not be shared with any so-called gods. Right? People do not understand the moral gravity of the human condition because they do not understand the claim of biblical faith as to who God is and what is entailed by God being God. Once that is grasped, then we can begin to see our duty clearly. And the result of that, hopefully, is a sort of new, livelier, deeper sense of human idolatry and human corruption. And you know where perhaps the best place to see this is? It is in the Westminster Larger Catechism in its exposition of the first commandment. Question 104. What are the duties required in the first commandment? This is the answer. The duties required in the first commandment are the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the only true God and our God, and to worship and glorify Him accordingly by thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, Choosing, loving, desiring, and fearing him. Believing him, trusting, hoping, delighting, rejoicing in him. Being zealous for him, calling upon him, giving all praise and thanks, and yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man. Being careful in all things to please him, and sorrowful when in anything he is offended, and walking humbly with him. Then follows 23 proof texts. That's what's required by the first commandment. That's what's required. You know, the catechism continues. What are the sins forbidden in the first commandment? The sins forbidden in the first commandment are atheism in denying or not having a God. Idolatry in having or worshiping more gods than one. Or any with or instead of the true God the not having and confessing him as God and as our God, the omission or neglect of anything due to him, ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of him, all profaneness, hatred of God, self-love, self-seeking, and all other inordinate and immoderate setting of our mind, will, or affections upon other things, and taking them off him in whole or in part, Vain credulity, unbelief, heresy, misbelief, distrust, despair, incorrigibleness, and insensibleness under judgments. Hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security, tempting God, corrupt, blind, indiscreet zeal, lukewarmness, deadness in the things of God. Estranging ourselves and apostatizing from God, praying or giving any religious worship to saints, angels or any other creatures, all compacts and consulting with the devil and hearkening to his suggestion, making men the lords of our faith and conscience, slighting and despising God and his commands, resisting and grieving of his spirit discontent and impatience at his providence, charging him foolishly for the evil he inflicts on us, and ascribing the praise of any good we either are, have, or can do to fortunes, idols, or ourselves, or any other creature. Then follows 46 biblical citations. You do not have to get past the first commandment to shatter the self-congratulatory illusion of human goodness. Just to see it requires a theocentric, God-saturated vision. Then it becomes quite clear that all fall short of that glory. This is what is meant. This is what is meant by putting away our Baals and our ashtaroths, ridding ourselves of foreign gods, returning to the Lord with all the totality of our interior life and serving him only. And this is repentance, which can only be supernaturally granted. It must be perpetually renewed. And in this text, it is granted. The Israelites put away their idols, we're told. And they return. There's now no more magic arc theology in Israel. right? No more manipulating or harnessing God for human purposes. There is the word of the Lord of the covenant, the jealous God who betrothed Israel to himself. And that word, that word turns people then and now from the bondage of idols to the liberating service of the living God. That's repentance. Our second thing here in this text is renewal. Samuel, he calls for and he leads a covenant renewal service here. You can see it in verse five. Assemble all Israel at Mizpah and I will intercede with the Lord for you. Repentance is not merely a private affair. It's a national corporate issue. Peoples have to do it. Nations have to do it. Churches have to do it. Communities have to do it. That's part of why we have a corporate prayer of confession at the front end of the service here. So the people assemble. Samuel leads them in prayer. And they're fasting. They confess their sins. The Philistines hear of the assembly. Right? And they send some rulers to attack. The Israelites get afraid. They ask Samuel to continue to pray. Prayer is either mocked or it's ignored by the hard-nosed realists of the world, like the Philistines are here. But it's important to remember, for the poor and for the oppressed, For the people without weapons, for the people militarily and technologically disadvantaged like Israel, prayer is a survival necessity. It's a concrete political act. It's taking up the way of the cross and subverting the idea that power politics, military political action, is the only or the dominant game in town. And here, it's the instrument that delivers the nation. There was a a PCA pastor named Dale Davis. He taught Old Testament for many years at RTS in uh, Jackson, Mississippi. He says of this text, The church in the West is so used to developing new strategies, originating effective gimmicks, or promoting proven programs, that she can dupe herself into thinking she lives by her own cleverness. There is, he says, a form of spiritual warfare that is not touched by better administration or brighter or more creative ideas. He goes on to say that it's times like the one in this text when God takes all the props away that we realize that prayer, desperate prayer, is not a cop-out, but it's our rational activity. Suffering people pray. Desperate people pray Comfortable people mock. And in addition to prayer and to the confession of sins, we get a sacrificial offering. Because who can stand before the God whose glory is present in the ark but not captured in the ark? No one, of course. No one without the shedding of blood. This is why Paul says the whole New Testament teaches Right? that we have redemption through the blood of Christ, the forgiveness of our sins. So Samuel calls out to the Lord. And we're told in verse 9, the Lord answers him. Prayer is what we call reverse thunder. You may remember that from the Revelation series. Thunder from earth to heaven, answered by God's thunder back. And here the Lord thunders loudly. The Philistines panic and they're routed. You know what you see in this passage among many other things, you see that worship is an act of renewing covenant with God, right? Covenant renewal worship is then an act of spiritual warfare. It's a form of heavenly combat. In this case, it leads directly to a military triumph. In many other cases, it leads directly to martyrdom. But the point is, nothing, nothing, is more consequential than what we are doing right here. Being lifted up into heaven, we powerfully affect the course of things on earth. As Hannah had prophesied, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder from heaven. That's the importance of corporate worship. Finally, finally I want to talk a few Say a few words about remembrance. In verse 12, pretty famous verse, Samuel takes a stone, sets it up, and he names it Ebenezer, which means a stone of help. Here they've received aid, they've received help, and Samuel, rightly, he wants to memorialize it. He wants to permanently write it on Israel's consciousness. So he sets it up and he says, Thus far, the Lord has helped us. To this point, even through the dark judgments of the earlier chapters, to this point God has been our help and our aid. And recalling this, right remembering it, seeing and touching this stone of help, this Ebenezer causes Israel to hope. To hope that the Lord of the future will finish his work and secure their future destiny. As the, as the great hymn named for this event puts it, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. What is that? But it's another way of saying Tis grace that brought us safe this far. It is grace that will lead us home. So let me conclude to return to the beginning. Yahweh is jealous. He is unlike the gods of the land. He demands exclusive loyalty, total covenant allegiance. Now, let's just make this clear. It was then and it is now audacious. His glory will not be shared with another because it's infinitely full and there is no other. And when that god Becomes man. He refuses to consort with other religious leaders or tolerate other gods. He makes the same provocative all or nothing summons, which we heard in the gospel lesson. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. That's the God of Israel and flesh talking. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That is how the God of Israel, the God of the first commandment, speaks when he becomes man. I recently read a wonderful book on Advent by Fleming Rutledge. She's an Anglican theologian. She addresses this, this question in a, in, a, in a related way. I want to cite a short couple of sentences from her book. She says this. The voice of Jesus is not like any other voice ever heard. That's one of the reasons I believe in him. There is this note of command over all that is or was or is to come. It's a voice of authority. Cosmic, universal authority. Proclaiming the destiny of the world. Truly, truly, I say to you. The hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God and those who hear will live. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. And she concludes, who talks like that? What other voice has ever been heard claiming such things. Jesus has not relaxed the terms of communion with God. He says what Yahweh says. He demands what Yahweh demands. But here is the good news. Right? Here is the gospel. He, as God incarnate, has made it possible for you to dwell in gladness, comfort, peace, and joy with that God. Right? To stand in, With gladness and joy in his presence. He enables us to sing. As our hymn of preparation put it. I don't know if you caught this third. I think it was the third verse. The dearest idol I have known. Whatever that idol be. Help me to tear it from thy throne. And worship only thee. That's the deepest depths of human liberation. Our hearts are, John Calvin says, a factory of idols. The gospel is to shut the factory down and restore the dignity and liberty of human beings. And so, Jesus then appears to us as the greater Samuel because he alone kept the first commandment. There's one person who's kept the first commandment in history, Jesus. Indeed, he kept the entire law that means he rendered to God what was due to God from you and me, which we fail to render. And he offered not a substitute like Samuel does in our text. He offers himself. And Samuel interceded for Israel, but Jesus risen ever lives to intercede for us with God. And so now because of what he has done, because he has upheld the covenant from our side. We can, even in our sin, in our frailty, in our weakness, repent and return to the Lord through him. He perfects our prayers, our weak prayers, our wandering prayers, our defective piety. He purifies and covers over our impurity and our sin. And this means Jesus is our rock of help. Our Ebenezer. It's a strange hymn, right? I'm sure some of you have wondered what this hymn is referring to, which we're going to sing in closing. It's referring to this passage in 1 Samuel 7. And it's a clear text which points us directly to Jesus. His cross stands forever as the reminder in public of God's help, of God's unchanging love. I've mentioned before, but I love the tense of the verb in Romans five, where Paul says God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. Demonstrates is present tense. Paul does not say that God demonstrated his love for you. He says that God demonstrates now in this present hour, that cross stands as your Ebenezer. If you want to know if God loves you, if God has and will help you, the answer is yes. And the world wants to know this. And this is not a sentimental, wistful yes This is not a hallmark yes. This is the yes of Jesus' lacerated, broken flesh at the hands of the Roman state. He, to rescue us from danger, interposed his precious blood. Right now, this instant, that cross demonstrates, is demonstrating God's love to you. It is your rock of help. Your Ebenezer. And that cross is remembered. It is set up permanently in the church right there at that table. You know what you can do there? You can touch the Ebenezer. Eat it, drink it, and take it into your own hands. There, the thus far the Lord has helped us is set forth. Right? We remember that. Because we forget easily. That's why Samuel set up the stone. That's why Jesus left us the supper. Thus far, the Lord has helped us. Hither by thine help I've come. And that memory right there, that seeing and touching the stone, stimulates communion and gratitude in the present. It takes our hearts. And seals them for God's courts above. The past is present there. The present is present there. And that memory, that stone of help, stimulates confident hope that by that very faithfulness, we who are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, will safely arrive at home. Amen. Amen.